0: Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I'm joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Business Reporter Rachel Sapin. We have some interesting things to talk about this week, uh, starting with the dawn, or maybe not the dawn, but the commercialization of 3D salmon. Um Rachel, this was your, uh, your story, uh, and you talked to the company behind it. As far as I know, there's only one, or there there are a couple of companies doing 3D salmon. I, I don't know, but you talked to the CEO of uh, Revo Foods, um, and tell us a bit about what they're up to, and then um, and then from there, I'd like to hear what both of you guys think about it.
1: Yeah, Revo Foods, it's um, a new company. It's started by um, a young man. His name's Robin Simsa. He lives in uh, Austria. And he and a couple fellow PhD resource- researchers sorry, um, are going to be 3D printing the first smoked salmon that they're going to sell on some bagels at a kind of hipster uh, bagel shop. Uh, Called Budapest Bagel in Vienna in March. So we talked to them and just kind of learned about how they're putting together all these plant based ingredients and uh, I guess making them into a powder form and then putting them into a 3D printer and making salmon. It's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. And it, I mean, so they are the fact that they're, you know, going to be delivering to this bagel ring. It's probably small and I, Looked online, it does look very hip. By the way, it in non non pandemic times, I would be hanging out there right now, having a coffee, and I would <laughs> love it. Uh, I would not be one of the hip people there though. Um, but it, it's small. But the, you, you know, you you were saying that essentially, obviously, they're in fundraising mode. But the the technology and the ability to commercialize it's just a matter of them getting the money to scale. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're still really new. um, And they have about 50,000 euros from um, a a kind of an Austrian government uh, slash European Union green climate fund. But yeah, they're definitely looking to raise more money. Uh, They want to start out with selling the product into the German and European markets. But I know they're looking to to expand and uh, they sound like they're pretty ambitious. I mean, just the fact they're 3d printing seafood is, is pretty ambitious. So yeah, I think they're trying to ramp up operations, but um, it's just a really cool technology and it's, I know their ultimate goal is to make fillets, but I think that's still a couple of years away, but yeah, they want to make a, you know, smoked salmon as well as a a salmon paste that they think will do well in uh, the Austrian and German and other EU markets. So that's uh, what Robin kind of had planned so far
0: well it's always interesting you know when you have these um these kind of really bright researchers that are onto a a product and you know to be a good researcher and a good sort of chief executive slash marketer slash ambassador for your product is that's a pretty difficult combination um but he does just from from kind of my watching the company even though they're super tiny Um, he does seem pretty social media savvy. Um, and does seem like he's kind of on the, at least on the radar of a lot of these, um, these kind of ocean, uh, ocean focused startup groups. And and um, you know, and three D printed food tends to fall into that, especially because of the ingredients they use, which, as you mentioned, they a lot of times. It uh, sounds like they're going to use algae, and a lot of these other plant-based um, seafoods are using those types of things. So it does kind of fit into that, you know, that area of of what they're um, of what they're looking for. So I'm sure they'll find some takers, assuming that it truly is commercially ready. But, um, but John Fiorillo, you've got some opinions on this. You yourself might not be scrambling to go buy this in your local store. <laughs>
2: Uh, you just set me up all the time, don't you? Uh, well, the idea that my food is coming out of a printer—I um, mm, don't know. Does does that sound good to you guys? I'm not, not to Well,
1: really. I'm bored, so anything new sounds good to me. But you <laughs> know, I don't know. Maybe when I have more to do, <laughs> I'll be less excited about weird stuff. Uh,
2: uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's plant-based, which you guys said, so, you know, I, I don't know what the advantage of printing it is, except that you can get different shapes, and maybe production can be uh, a lot higher. I have no idea. But uh, And I don't know if it was in the story, Rachel, pardon me, I don't remember, but do we have any idea what a piece of printed salmon would cost? compared to you know the kind that-
1: yeah i actually don't know that that's a great question um i'm not sure about costs i know they're trying to promote that it's going to be a significantly less cost in terms of carbon footprint <laughs> obviously making yeah. salmon from a printer versus whether norwegian salmon farm is doing either land-based or net pen um yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure what their scale is at this point. Um, I don't know. It could even be less expensive, (laughs) depending on, uh, you know, how it's produced.
2: You know, uh, uh, two cents a copy, like uh, what I run (laughs) the paper out of my printer. Uh, Yeah, and I guess this carbon footprint is starting to become the holy grail measuring stick for food production and 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 that that's fine and all but um yeah i i don't know i'm not overwhelmed by it it sounds highly processed which i'm you know not not my favorite type of food but i guess drew's gonna have an opinion on it go ahead
0: well yeah I (laughs) i i i do i do um yeah, I, I don't feel like either one of you brought enough emotion to the to the <laughs> table yet. So I'll I'll try to I'll try to get well, that geez. moving. I
1: just uh, feel like neutral. I'm sorry. I just think it's interesting. So go ahead.
0: Now, go ahead. now wait a minute. I I happen to track your social media activity, and I saw that on LinkedIn you were saying that it it would be something that it might actually get your your kid to eat fish, and I find that compelling because. Um, I guess in theory, in theory, since anything seems possible in food now, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of these groups that are making like protein powder out of their salmon, like Hofsteth uh, BioCare has this like salmon protein powder that they're, um, selling and I've tried, um, I think it was mixed with lemonade, but it was still fine. Um, but, uh, but I... In theory, you can see how you could maybe even use fisheries byproducts as this powder um, to print these fillets. And so you could actually bring a whole new, you know, you could, it could be really kind of an interesting part of the circular economy, depending on how fast those things can print. Because as of now, it takes a long time to print even a small little plastic thing. But that, let's assume that will, will improve. So, Rachel, can you see your son? Um you know, more likely to eat salmon if it was in a shape of a cartoon character that he loves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have dino nuggets. They're like a staple. Like, we just have to have them because he loves them, because he loves dinosaurs. So anything in the shape of a dinosaur, he would eat at this point. And on that point, uh, Revo Foods, you know, I am basing my opinion on whether they do make um, a Pokemon uh shaped salmon as i was promised on linkedin and our contract so um yeah but it is it's a struggle to get little kids to eat food it really is like we have to come up with creative things all the time like we have a new thing now where it's called you do a battle with the food and it's like azure versus his vegetables and go and he like well, we'll eat that way but like if it's just the food he's like yeah this is not fun you know and he just doesn't care so yeah, you do. You have to make it entertaining at his age, at least for me. Maybe other people, you know, um, have other things to do with their kids. But my my kid, he likes to be entertained. <laughs> even when he's eating.
0: You're not alone. And we've all like flown airplanes into people's mouths. Um, But, um, you know, I, I do think there there is something I, there's something to be said about this this technology how it's applied and whether or not it's cost effective and how it will scale and everything is um, of course, a long way away. But long way away is, does not mean much anymore, right? Because things move so, so quickly. And I'm just really surprised to see all this food tech, especially plant-based, um, moving so quickly. And it does seem that it's gone from always in that neat and, and printing food. 3D-printed food has also kind of gone to, like, oh, you know, from, oh, isn't that neat just a few years ago. And, and I, I was looking at some videos online to kind of see how far this has progressed. And they've been talking about 3D-printed meat for quite some time. And um, and that's kind of what made me think of of sort of using, like, fish protein powder or, like, byproducts because that's actually – how they are doing meat, like printing steaks. Um, I think there's a couple of companies doing it in the U.S. and I think France. Um, and that's that's how they're doing it. They're getting the cells, culturing the meat, and then printing it. And that made me think of um, Blue Nalu. And, you know, they've had no trouble raising some capital to get moving, and they're building a facility. And, yeah, it's small. But again, there's all this dry powder in the investment community that are, are looking for, you know, a way to have impact. And these are the types of things that absolutely capture the imagination of um, some of these types of funds, especially if it's like a Google Ventures or a Tyson Ventures or, um, you know, a high net worth individual fund. Uh, I'm thinking like S2G Ventures, for example. They back Beyond me. And Beyond Meat now, um, John, you sent me an article yesterday, right, that Beyond Meat just struck a bunch of deals with McDonald's and uh, Yum! Brands and all these others, you know, so it, it can go incredibly fast. And once these groups get more capital, they can scale quickly. But I could see that's actually an interesting question is, you know, when you do when Blue Nalu does perfect like the perfect tuna a uh, perfect bluefin tuna, and they can grow it from cells, you know, you're going to have to create it. You're going to have to produce it in a way that's going to be appetizing, and what better way to do that than 3D printing? So, I don't know.
2: Yeah, but let, let, let's, let, let's, let's think about this for a second. So, let's assume the printing all works, and the cell-based stuff all works, and the plant-based stuff continues to grow. And by stuff, I mean seafood. In this particular case, let's go forward. I don't know, you know, five, ten years, whatever it may be, when all this is is scaled, let's say, and you know, it's cranking out, and they're selling it, and et cetera, et cetera. Where does that put real fish, real shellfish? What? What? What becomes of what we now consider seafood? Does it is it market share impacted at all? More importantly, like what is becomes the perception of animal food in this case? I throw that out to the two of you.
0: I feel like you are are constantly wringing your hands about the what's going to happen with <laughs> traditional seafood when we talk about these things.
2: I am wringing my hands.
0: Well, I think you will still be able to go down to, you know, the local store and get an oyster. I think there th- that will always be, I think, the predominant part of seafood. Can I see certain kinds of seafood fading away and not being eaten anymore in the future? Yeah, for sure. I think there will be changes in that, um, just given the amount of species that are traded and um, – I think there will be major shifts and and this is across the entire food chain that i think it will happen but um but I, yeah i think it'll be a, a supplement you know it'll be a, a a part of the different options um and there's some real practical um potential um problem solving um problem solving uh promise with some of these products so um i think seafood stays uh and and continues but probably in maybe a little more uh narrower choice uh in a in a broader scale um maybe we lose some of that diversity at least everywhere i think you'll still be able to go get different kinds of of fish though at your uh at your market for years and years and years to come so i don't think you should worry um rachel what do you think
1: yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it just had me thinking too. Of, um, you know, I was covering that call for Aqua Bounty, and they were talking about offering the first um, genetically modified salmon samples to customers. Um, it looks like largely food service in the US. And Syl- Sylvia Wolf had this quote that she was, or just had this comment that she wants, she wouldn't mind if Aqua Bounty was like the box wine and Alaska seafood was the Bordeaux you know, uh, wine in terms of the seafood. And I kind of just wonder if it's going to start to be tiered like that. Hmm. And that's my only thought with how maybe the, you know, really mass produced, 3D produced or fast growing, uh, food, if that's going to kind of, you know, just be the really cheap level that seafood that has a story that's raised somewhere, you know, that's going to fit in more to like a higher end, uh, tier of shopping, which is kind of sad, you know, in a way, because I, there's an equity access issue with that happening. But I could also see the way our system works, our, uh, you know, how capital capitalism works, um, kind of food heading that way. Hmm.
0: Interesting.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I think there's merit to that idea too, because, uh, you know, yeah, I just think wild, natural kind of or farm raised uh, fish. Could definitely become not a commodity anymore, but you know some rare opportunity at a restaurant or something like that. you know, and I'm projecting many years ahead, not tomorrow in any way, but i I agree with rachel i I could see it moving in that direction.
0: Well, I just think it's good, clean fun to think about printing food. <laughs>
1: We could eat it in space.
0: <laughs> I think it's great. I would like, like you, to have one handy. If I could print my food, I would I would love to do it. I mean, not, like not, not every day, like but I think it'd be great.
2: You know, just stop right where you are. Okay. You're, you were raised in Bristol Bay, Alaska. You fished with your father on a boat. What the hell are you talking about eating printed salmon?
0: Hey, you know what? If you wanna ride your horse and buggy down to ye old fish market, and if that makes <laughs> you feel good, that's fine. But uh well, it was uh, it was a really fun story, Rachel, and um I think it's gonna be interesting. Um and it's it's um I'm really enjoying uh in addition to our sort of regular coverage that we're kind of keeping an eye on some of these startups and some of these interesting technologies. Because it's you know, if anything. Um, it should, uh, spark some imagination. All right. Well, let's pivot a bit to, uh, real seafood, uh, and talk about the farm shrimp sector. We had, uh, our first Interfish digital event of the year, our shrimp forum, uh, earlier this week. It was uh, a fantastic lineup of speakers. We, uh, really, really, uh, really, really got great people. Um, we had, um... Thai Union's Global Innovation Director, uh, Tunyawat uh, Kasim Suwan, uh, known as uh, Dr. Dr. Nude. Um, Werner Yos, the CEO at Camanor, uh, Brazilian uh, shrimp producers. Yahira uh, Piedrahita, she's the executive director at Ecuador's National Chamber of Aquaculture. Uh, Willem Vanderpils, he's the founder of uh, Shrimp Insights. Uh, and uh, Bill Honig, he's the vice president of sales and operations at Delta Blue Aquaculture. Now, prior to getting into that panel, uh, we had a presentation from uh, Rabobank's uh, Goran Nikolic, um, who always has uh, great, great insights into uh, all the different uh, markets for shrimp and, and whitefish and salmon in particular, and um, he didn't disappoint. He had um, really good analysis of what we can expect in the coming year, um, both from the uh, supply and demand side. Um, and in general, um, you know, Goryan's uh, view on shrimp markets was was pretty positive. Um, you know, there, there it does depend on a couple of things. China and the U.S. food service market will uh, we'll have some, um, certainly have some, some bearing on, on what's gonna, uh, what's gonna happen, but it truly is a buyer's market. When you look at what has happened with prices over the course of the past year with shrimp being so dependent on food service. Um, and so, um, yeah. So the question is, will this retail demand keep going? Um, uh, we have seen frozen sales absolutely explode. And it's a question: Will it continue? So, um, John, what was uh, what was some of your um, what was your some some of your takeaways from Gorian's presentation in in particular? Yeah,
2: one of my first ones was his comparison of the markets: uh, the U.S. market, Europe, and China. And uh, in a nutshell, the U.S. market was very strong. Imports increased, volume increased, value increased all throughout. 2020. Now it's unclear whether all of that is sitting in inventory or if it was consumed, but the market nonetheless was receptive to bringing in, you know, lower prices probably helped there as well. You go over to Europe, however, and uh, you don't see that same, you know, jump in the market. It it was minimal in July and August and actually by October had uh, fallen back behind 2019 levels as far as imports were concerned so and then if you hop over to China that market uh, was the most negatively impacted of of them all in uh, 2020 and you know uh, the numbers later in the year September October were were pretty poor compared to uh, volumes imported in uh, 2019 so uh three different markets three major markets all behaving a bit differently uh, it was that's kind of my initial takeaway from his presentation but like you say there's so much good information in it we can you know we can carve up and talk about some other uh, parts of it as well so
0: yeah i mean I, I think you really you know he emphasized china in particular um imports were down by uh 11% in volume and 16% in value which says something right there about prices um uh through through november um so that doesn't include the rest of what happened in the, uh in, in 2020 but um it does give you an idea of of just what happened to uh, to that market in particular and remember China had food scares related to shrimp as well and packaging uh, and Ecuador was banned for um, a, a period there um, and that caused some scares in different regions so um, so so that uh, that had an impact but um, you know really it's about whether or not China comes back um, and yeah. you could see, in uh, September, October, November, you could see some some real recovery. I mean, month on month, really sharp recovery. Now that seems to trend with uh, what happened the year prior, so it could be there's ramp ups in you know ahead of uh, ahead of Chinese New Year, for example. Yeah, okay. But the um, the increases were uh, were were you know sizable, heading in the right direction, uh, albeit from a, a low there. Um, now, uh, the the Chinese economy is, uh, by all accounts, one of the furthest ahead in recovering from COVID. And so um, it seems like that, whether or not people get back more to normal activities, uh, normal food service consumption, um, will, will certainly dis- dictate a lot um, of what's going to happen. But there absolutely is... Um, there's a need to uh, absorb a lot of this volume. Um, And as of now, again, like, like Gorian said, it's, uh, it's absolutely, um, absolutely a buyer's market. Um, So just looking a little bit on the, uh, on the production side of things, um, that that was uh, also insightful. There's, You know, he he told us a bit about Ecuador um, and the the export growth and kind of looking back over the past five to five to seven years is really impressive to see um, what's been happening with Ecuador. Now, the challenge is um, has been China, as I mentioned earlier, that um, Ecuadorian exports took a big hit um, to uh, to to China. They've come back pretty significantly. Um, maybe much quicker than uh, than they had expected, um, but but um, but Ecuador seems like it's going to be um, you know it's it's here to stay. Although I think there was realization that um, that uh, that they're going to need to diversify beyond just China. Um, that that was um, a, a bit of a a, a a bit of a liability to them. So um, uh, even though Yehira mentioned that it's it's continues to be, um, their largest market. And, you know, she said they will, will continue to support and invest in that market. You know, she said there is a realization uh, that there, there needs to be other markets, uh, other markets beyond that. Um, you know, I, the other one I thought was quite interesting that, that, um, that Gorian highlighted was Indonesia. Um, and, and one of the things that helped Indonesia out, um was the focus on u.s retail and again that's something that you know we just we just keep writing about just keep hearing the strength in u.s retail even with the u.s economy um being what it is um you know the retail sector has really really continued to do well um you know, John, this this hits right along with the the trends that um, you've been covering, and um, yeah, t- trends that you just um, highlighted in a in a recent report that you and uh, Kim did on the uh, on the um, post COVID sales. But obviously, retail just yeah, it's it's lifting all all boats.
2: Yeah, you know, and and uh, Bill Honig tackled the question of whether. Uh, this increased consumption in the U.S. market f- of seafood will stick, so to speak, uh, in as we hopefully ease our way out of COVID and vaccines are administered and things return uh, to a little more uh, normal, um, you know, that we knew before COVID. And, and that's the ultimate question, right? I mean, you got to think there's going to be some give back from retail to food service once food service kind of, gets up and running again. But that, that's not going to be any time soon. You know, the food service sector in the U.S. Was, was hammered. I mean, they're talking at least 100,000 restaurants closed. And, you know, that doesn't just, it's not a light switch. It does, doesn't just come back overnight. So... You know, I think the prevailing feeling from seafood uh, execs I've been talking to is that retail will remain uh, resilient and strong uh, through this year. and and then uh, then we'll see. you know, then we'll see what happens after that. But, boy, if you know, you hate to say something wonderful came out of a pandemic, but there's no doubt about it that. In, in the U.S., um, you know, consumption of seafood, particularly at retail, really blossomed uh, during, during 2020.
0: You know, I think with, with the, the shrimp sector, you know, one of the things that, uh, that was, was hit on um, that was refreshing to see, because a lot of times, you know, the focus of uh, these discussions can oftentimes always kind of drill down to price and that has been shrimp's long-term problem right is it's been sold on price it's been bought on price um quality has not seemed to be a differentiator um i'm not saying there has not been quality shrimp produced i'm just saying that there there hasn't been much luck sort of finding a way to brand um to kind of get more value um dr Nud at thai union talked about branding and and the importance of that Um, You mentioned Bill and, you know, Bill talked about that as well of, you know, there has to be a shift at some point who's going to invest, how it's going to happen. That still remains a question, but, you know, that is going to be critical, I think, to the industry kind of developing in the way that, that it's going to need to. And I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how the industry pivots away from, from being a commodity product, um, but I found that, I find that um, to be an interesting point of discussion, how to develop brands, how to develop value-added products.
2: Yeah, and there was at some point during the uh, uh, webinar, somebody mentioned you know, the, this golden opportunity because you have the uh, consumer's attention right now. So if you're going to get a brand in front of them, you know, 2020 was a good place to start. I personally didn't see that in, in my experience. You know, I, I, like I say all the time, I do the grocery shopping every week. And when I go through the frozen section, uh, this for seafood, a lot of it's store brand, um, bags of shrimp in this case. Um, so, you know, that's not branding in the sense that I don't, that I think you're you're talking about. Um, so I, I didn't see that developing. I didn't really see advertising, branded shrimp advertising targeting me. So I don't know that that furthered, uh, was furthered very much during this. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, I mean, my feeling is, if you pin me down on it, is that it's still a commodity product and had that, you know, To 2020 and the growth and all that hasn't really changed that in my eyes, but maybe maybe you see it differently. I'm not sure. Well, you
0: know, I I think one of the great things that um that Bill said that um yeah should be quoted more because it's just a it's a great quote. Um, was that salmon is like OPEC because there's that constant comparison of how can how can things become more like salmon? Um, and I thought Bill broke down in a really good way why other places are, or other species rather, are not the same as, as salmon's, farm salmon. And he noted that there's very specific regions where it's grown. You have a commonality of sizes, a commonality of, of, of packaging and, um, you know, a relatively consolidated, um, sector. And, you know, shrimp is not in that way. You don't get those consistent sizes so easily. You have to do a lot of sorting um, and then you have to adjust your machinery. It's very difficult to do much with, with, um, with the product that's, um, you know, that, that's, uh, <laughs> that's got shrimp shape and, um, and that, that's, you know, that, that requires a lot of, of hand work still um, to, to produce. So I think that um you know I I think that the idea of of bringing more value from shrimp in a um in a new product development format is going to be a challenge um just for for those reasons but I I think they're you know as people think about how to bring more value from the shrimp sector which will lead to other things like more consolidation and um kind of builds upon itself to get more investment etc. Um, as people think about that, you know, you have to be pretty clear eyed about the challenges and that's why these major producers don't tend to own shrimp farms. They tend to buy from shrimpers process okay. and sell on, um, whether or not that will change, especially as demands increase on traceability and, and as you know, other, uh, other, other factors come into play, who knows? Um, let's see. Now, one thing that was really interesting, uh, another topic of, of discussion there at the uh, at the panel was um, uh, recirculating aquaculture systems for shrimp, um, which is um, w- which has been discussed. I think that it's been it's been done on small scales, um, but what sort of changed the uh, the calculus a little bit was um, last year um, CP Foods, um, the, the Thai, uh, Thai giant, um, announced it would be building a, a facility in the United States, um, kind of a, what it called an anywhere, anytime shrimp farm. Um, and, uh, and I think that whole idea of, of local, uh, close to market production is obviously capturing people's attention. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, there was interesting discussions about what that could mean, but, um, you know, again, a little uh, excitement, but at the same time, sort of skepticism that's going to yield any kind of volume in the way that um, people are talking about farm salmon potentially doing, uh, land-based salmon potentially.
2: Yeah, and if you think land-based salmon is just at the beginning of its curve, um, well, <laughs> shrimp is even further back than that, you know, as far as, uh, scaling to a commercial level, but you know, it's, uh, it's again, it's technology driving, driving food production. And, uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens with the, you know, the farm, uh, here in the U S that you just mentioned. Um, one, you know, on that topic of technology, I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed Alan Cooper of uh, his presentation. He's with VitaPro, and one thing you know, he talked a lot about uh, technology development, genetics, all these things that are really being poured into the shrimp sector around the world to try and, you know, to try and get. <laughs> I guess to try and professionalize it in some ways from the production point of view. And he he gave a great example. He said in Ecuador, uh, if you go back, you know, five to seven years, there were no automatic feeders being used. Now, he said there's 30,000 automatic feeders in operation in Ecuador. That's a significant technological jump. And the automatic feeders are important for for a number of reasons. So it's not just technology for technology's sake. It, it uh, actually, in, in Shrimp's case here with, with the feeders, it, it, uh, it streamlines production. It makes production more cost-effective. So uh, he had a lot of uh, interesting things to say on technology, and it just caught my ear about how technology and Shrimp Uh, farming has really developed and continues to develop as, as we go forward.
0: And then, of course, there's going to be 3D shrimp just around the corner for you, John, when you're ready for that.
2: Here I was, I was all calmed down. Now you got me all ratcheted up again.
0: <laughs> it's almost cocktail hour, so I thought, you know, I'll <laughs> let you let you move right into that with a smile. Um, yeah. Okay, well, we'll we'll wrap it up there. A couple of things, uh, a couple of things that we have coming down the pike. On March twenty third, we have another webinar. Uh, it is our Seafood Outlook uh, webinar, and we do this annually. Usually we do it at Boston, but hey, this year we won't be doing it at Boston, of course. Nonetheless it will be a fantastic event. We have uh, already a couple of speakers that are booked. Uh, Teresa Logberjord from Scredding, Kim Gorton from Slade Gorton, and several others that uh, will be added to the lineup soon. So. miss that just go to interfish and you can register your place we also this week launched our latest business intelligence report it is called selling seafood in a post-covid era Um, john you and kim tran our senior market analysts have been working hard on this it's a fantastic report uh, it gives uh, insight into not only what occurred over the past year and what changed um, uh, in markets uh, over the course of the past uh, 12 months with COVID, but more importantly, it talks about what trends are, uh, are changing, uh, what has changed, and, um, and, and what people can expect and how they're going to, um, to, to run their businesses successfully and profitably uh, in the coming year. Um, so, uh, interviews with, uh, top executives in the seafood sector, as well as, uh, market analysts and, uh, much, much more included in that report. So you can go to interfish.com under our, uh, industry reports section and find, uh, both that report and other Uh, of our latest intrafish business intelligence reports okay thanks everyone and we'll speak to you next week